For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I think it's one of the things that we tap dancers proudly recognize instantly is that we we are music. Like, and and the beauty is that yes, we can dance with musicians, and we don't necessarily need musicians. You know, right? I stand really strongly behind that concept of tap being both magic and music. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host Isaac Butler, and I'm your other host Nate Chinen. Nate. Welcome aboard the good ship working. Uh, For listeners who are getting caught up, Nate is subbing for our co-host Karen Hahn, who is on leave this summer. This is his very first episode, and I am so excited because we are so lucky to have him uh, filling in. Nate, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. First of all, what a pleasure it is to be here and be a part of this team. I've been a listener of the show for a while, and so I'm so happy to be pitching in as a co-host. Now, about me, I am a music critic. I'm formerly with the New York Times, now mainly contributing to NPR. And several years ago, I published a book called Playing Changes, Jazz for the New Century, which was actually reviewed for Slate by the estimable Carl Wilson. I think he's a Mm. mutual friend of ours. Yep. And I now work as editorial director of the excellent Philadelphia-based jazz and classical music station WRTI. And on the side... I have a Substack newsletter called The Gig. Incredible. So uh, who did you select for your inaugural interview? I picked the tap dancer and choreographer Ayodele Cassell. Oh, cool. So what drew you to Ayodele and her work? I really wanted to start out at working with an artist, you know, a little outside my own field of expertise. And Ayodele is someone who really hit my radar this year. Um, Back in February, I saw her accept an award and give a a really eloquent speech at the Doris Duke Artist Awards. And I was so intrigued by her work at that time and also by what she said. And then, you know, skip ahead a few months and I saw her win another prestigious honor, the Herb Alpert Artist Award. Oh, yeah. You know, that's that's a lot of uh, shine for one artist in one year. And so it, it kind of led me to her work. And really, she was one of the very first people that popped to mind when I thought about talking with an artist. Um, and I should also say that, you know, tap dance and music, they do have a lot to say to one another. And so I had maybe a, a kind of ulterior motive at work as well. Is there anything extra for our Slate Plus listeners this week? Oh, yes. Uh, You know, Ayodele is, she's a real deep student of tap history and the art form. And I knew that she would have some really great tips for anybody who wants to delve into that history, you know, maybe, maybe even without any prior knowledge. So I asked her to share a few must-see clips that, you know, any one of us can call up on YouTube. So Mm. this is kind of a a peek into her bookmarks folder, so to speak. (laughs) And there are also some of the some of the clips that inspired her as a young dancer. 
But, you know, I can personally attest you do not have to be a dancer to enjoy them. Amazing. Well, uh, if you are a Slate Plus member, that'll be waiting for you at the end of this week's episode. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, really, what are you waiting for? You get all sorts of great goodies, not only bonus segments like that one, full access behind the paywall on the Mothership site of Slate.com. You also get bonus full episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood, and Slow Burn, which is currently in the midst of an all-killer, no-filler season about Clarence Thomas that you're going to want as much extra stuff as you possibly can get your hands on. So go to Slate.com slash Working Plus today and sign up. You'll also be supporting what we do right here on Working. All right, now let's listen in to Nate's conversation with dancer and choreographer Ayadeli Cassell. Ayodele Cassell, thank you for joining me on The Working Podcast to talk about your art. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. We are only halfway through 2023, and yet I've already seen you win a Doris Duke Artist <laughs> Award and a Herb Alpert <laughs> Award in the arts. Um, what do these prestigious awards mean to you, and how do they reflect on your work? I've been doing uh, this art in, since 1990. Well, I've had my shoes since 1995 and professionally since 1997 and, you know, creating my work since 1999. And we all know that artists, like, we work, we work, and we work. And sometimes we don't get, you know, recognition. And sometimes we, um, sometimes the work is not even there. Like, so we're just sort of, it feels like we're working just for us and, 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 and in vain sometimes. Right. But what this meant, um, especially the Doris Duke, because the first thing they told me was that I was selected by peers, my peers and, and presenters and institutions. And so, mm-hmm. and you don't know that th- people are watching in that way, you know? And so I felt just really grateful. I had a lot of gratitude, you know, that I, f- I feel like the work is, that it's reaching folks, you know, that it, that it matters. Uh, I think that's the thing that yeah. I feel like any artist wants is for their work to, to make impact. Well, y- you just mentioned that you've only had your shoes since the mid-90s. And so I wanted to, <laughs> to touch on that because, you know, cards on the table. This is my very first episode sitting in as a oh. guest host on Working. And I come from a music background. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in, in the realm of tap dance. But I do know that tap is one of those disciplines like piano playing or violin, you know, where a lot of people get started very young, you know, mm. like early, mm-hmm. early childhood in many cases. Um, this was not the case for you. Right. The only dancing I was doing young, you know, was dancing to, you know, Madonna and Michael Jackson and Cindy Lauper <laughs> and Janet, you know, Janet Jackson in my room. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but, you know, at 17, uh, I was in high school and my English teacher just started, uh, she started a course called History of the Movies. And it was the first time that I saw um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And so I thought, like, mm-hmm. that was the first time I saw tap dancing in a way that stuck with me. And I remember thinking like that, it looks like magic. Just the way that they floated across the screen. And I remember really wanting to do that, but certainly not having any access at the time to like any kind of classes. Yeah. So I would just, 
much like I was doing with, the, you know, Janet Jackson, I just went in my room and pretended to move my feet the way they, they were. But uh, when I was in college, I was an acting major at NYU. I got, an, I got a chance to uh, take a tap class because they were offering us movement classes. And so I thought, oh, my God, this is my chance to just, you know, sort of try on the Ginger Rogers, you know, hat, so to speak, you know, or shoes, I should say. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I just I put my shoes on and I just loved it so much. Like I just felt like I felt like I was living in a dream in a way, you know, and I just I don't know. I, I just kept with it. I kept with it. And about a year after that, I really, really um, found an education, a tap education when I met uh, this the young mm-hmm. dancer who was going to NYU as well. And he, you know, he taught me what tap dancing really was. And he said, you know, this is expression and, you know, it's really rooted in a really deep history of black people in this country. And it's about communication. And he taught me about Gregory Hines and the Nicholas Brothers and, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. And uh, just Jimmy Slide and, and Savion Glover. Like that is when I realized that, you know, this art form was something that I could really sink, you know, myself into and, and just get lost in it in the, in the most beautiful way. Because not only was I learning about something that um, was just interesting to me anyway, but it was also like my ancestral legacy in a, in a way as well. So I right. felt like it was, you right. know, honoring my own history in a way. I want to go more deeply into that cultural aspect. But first, I don't want to forget to ask, you know, the fact that you came to TAP in your you know, early college years, I wonder whether you think there's a part of your experience that, that actually benefited from that later exposure. You know, do you think that mm. had you been, you know, tap dancing at age five or six, you know, are there certain like things that you would have to later unlearn or yeah. shake off? You know, it's a great question because I absolutely believe that being a little bit older and also coming into it at the time that I did, which was in the 90s, where tap dancing was having a resurgence. There was, a, you know, um, culturally right. and, in, and in theater with bringing the noise, bringing the funk, being um, at the public theater and then transferring to Broadway. There was a lot of focus on young people, um, but there was also a lot of... Um, focus on self-expression and authenticity. And I think that whereas when you go to dance school, you learn things in a very specific way, kind of like everybody does it the same, right? And maybe it's toward a different goal, whereas like for your recital or for, you know, like for looks, for for visual entertainment. Whereas I think coming into it at the age of 19 in that time in the 90s where tap dancing was uh, really uh, being shared as a mode of self-expression and and so musically and also so rooted in Mm -hmm. the contemporary form. And at the time, you know, I always say the 90s was the best time for, you know, that was hip hop's reign, you know. And so I feel like we had such great music. And I think that those rhythms um, and that culture, that, that, you know, urban culture, that New York culture, I mean, in Savion's case, he was from Newark, you know, um, uh, all of that, our identity was really fueling the art form. And I think when you're older, you can, you know, I think it's easier to understand how to tap into that, no pun intended, faster, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in, in that yeah. way, yeah, I do think I came in right at the right time. You may have come to this art form, you know, relatively late. But you caught up really fast because when you say that you put on your first pair of shoes in, I think you said, 95. Yes. I saw a clip on YouTube of you with Savion Glover in 1997. 
So that's that's not a lot of runway for you to go from like yeah. first putting on your shoes to performing with you know arguably the most dynamic tap dancer of of that generation. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? I was obsessed like I was I have an obsessive personality I had one when I was younger for sure but I was obsessed with it I was practicing all the time I was practicing like you know um golly in the grocery store on the subway uh under my desk I was practicing you know in the you know in a studio I just was constantly moving my feet I was constantly listening every time I would listen to music I would try to hear what I could do with my feet to that particular, you know, song. And so, you know, I just put hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on it, you know. And also, I don't know, I showed up to everything that was happening around the city. And yeah. if they were on TV, I would record it. I would, I would just, I was just constantly practicing. So that's how that happened. You are an Afro-Latina artist with roots mm-hmm. in the Bronx. And you also yes. spent time growing up in Puerto Rico. Yes. So there's a there's a New Yorkian aspect. <laughs> um, there's mm-hmm. uh, you also are you consider yourself a, a Black American artist as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's yes. like multiple strains of of culture here. But I feel like the one that feels most resonant with respect to what you're doing with tap and correct me if I'm wrong is this sort of New York Puerto Rican musical and sort of performance perspective. Mm. And and you're it seems like you're really bringing a lot of of that perspective to your work. Yes. Did you feel that that was something that had not been properly addressed or or was there a need for that that voice? I didn't see it represented at all. Um and I didn't necessarily think like, "Oh, we need this," but I feel like because going back to what I was saying about tap dancing celebrating the individual expression, it was Im- mm-hmm. almost inevitable that it would come out because that was my experience, right? So right. I just happened to be like my father's uh, Black American, my mom is Puerto Rican, and I um, I grew up in Puerto Rico for about six years in the formative years. So I when I was nine to fifteen, so I know um, I speak the language. I grew up listening to the music when I was in college. I would go to all the Latin clubs in the city with my girlfriends, you know, and so naturally, Mm -hmm. it would make sense that that would just make its way into my artistic expression. And my very first show, my very first uh, one person show at the Triad Theater on 72nd Street um, was with a 10 piece Latin band. And so I just I there was something I was listening to the music so much. I said, I want to like I want to share something about the things that bring me joy. And what was bringing me joy at the time, (laughs) the most was tap dancing and listening to Latin music. And so my stepfather, uh, who actually played in the Charanga band, um, said, "Okay, I have he's like, I know the musicians and he put together a 10-piece Latin band of like giants. Many of them have since passed because these are people that used to play with Eddie Palmieri and like Tito Puente. Like, and so, uh, and because of my, my love for theater and storytelling, I just, it was like a, you know, 75-minute set of me just sort of giving voice to my experience growing up and the things that I loved and, and dancing to like cha-chas and danzones and all those, you know, all, yeah. all that music. Yeah. I love all of that coming together in this early performance um was it difficult to to literally be heard (laughs) in a space like that (laughs) i mean a Um, 10 piece band you know playing a kind of music that's not quiet being heard is always a a thing with tap dancing you know we're always trying to find the greatest combination of of instruments that are gonna you know equally amplify us and the musicians and you're right, right it was a very big sound um and so 
if you didn't hear me when the when the energy was like at a hundred, you could see my physical uh, sort of you know expression right. of that. Um, but then I also like you know played some cha chas and some you know some slower mm-hmm. stuff that uh, where where I could really really be heard. Yeah. But most importantly, I think what what I loved the most was that people could feel what it was that I was doing, you know. And I think mm-hmm. that that has been the most important thing for me as an artist and as a tap dancer is like, what are you feeling when you see me dance or when you see my work? I'm thinking about. A clip I saw from your show, When I Have the Floor. While um, I Have the Floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, while I Have the Floor, sorry. I, mm-hmm. um, That's okay. There's a voiceover that, that you do, and you're, you're dancing against this recording. And at one point, you, you say that you think of tap dancing as a kind of magic. Um, and here's the quote. Tap dancing is genius. I think it's like magic. That you have two pieces of metal on each foot and an infinite amount of music. And that really struck me because I think the standard way of thinking about tap is as an art form that really engages with music. But you're saying, no, 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 this is music. And so <laughs> yes. let's, let's talk about that a bit. Yes. I mean, did you come around to that conviction or did it always feel intuitive to you? Yeah, I think it's one of the things that we tap dancers proudly recognize instantly is that we we are music. Like, and and the beauty is that yes, we can dance with musicians, and we don't necessarily need musicians, you know, because right. we can uh, we can sing the song uh, with our feet, you know. Um, and so, I stand really strongly behind that concept of tap being both magic and music. Yeah, and so when you're developing patterns for yourself, are you also looking to like? conga patterns and like mm. like drum patterns you know is is there a kind of study across that line for you I believe so. And, you know, I mean, I think you, I, we could probably say this about, you know, jazz and uh, in other forms of music as well. But the thing that I love so much about listening to Latin music was that I love that I could hear, you know, there were some days where the bass really moved me. Like, and I feel like mm-hmm. the bass is like the heart and soul of, of, you know, of a Latin song. But then there were times when I would listen to the, like, just the, like, I would hear the piano and I would just love and relish what the piano uh, was doing, what the pianist was doing. And then, of course, it was in, in an artist like Ray Barreto and Mongo Santa Maria, like, you, you know, you get into, you know, what their r- rhythmic expression is. And it's just that phrasing is so sophisticated. It's kind of mind-boggling, like these how these rhythms and how they how they play with time, you know, right. and and how they go in and out of time, and how it's just it seems wild and out there, and yet really contained as well. Like it is genius to me, and so I there would be times where I would just listen to the same song and just kind of you know just pay attention to one one melody line, one tra- you know one track line because mm-hmm. it was. I, and I feel like choreographing and practicing and improvising to that music has made me a better musician as a tap dancer, for sure. Yeah. We'll be back with more of Nate's conversation with Ayadeli Cassell after this. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. 
Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramps business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramps software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, uh, listeners, it's Isaac Butler here. Hope you're doing well. Uh, just wanted to say that if you're enjoying this show, please make sure to subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you already subscribe, why not rate us or review us or recommend us by, if you're on Overcast, clicking that little star button. Uh, anything you do like that helps us gain new listeners and really helps us grow this show. So thank you in advance. Okay. Now back to Nate's conversation with Ayadeli Cassell. So we mentioned While I Have the Floor, and this was a piece that you developed, I guess, is this from 2016? 2016. Right? Yes, yes, um, you're right. I haven't seen it, but I've seen clips. And based on that and, and some of the reviews that I've read, I have a, a, a pretty clear understanding that this piece is, it's a one-woman show. It is a work of autobiography and theater mm -hmm. as well as a dance piece. And yes. so, you know, the fact that you started out as a as a theater studies major and you have that that performance tradition in your history, I, I'd like to talk about how you bring this all together, um, because you seem very much like a pure tap fanatic <laughs> and very much like all about honoring that tradition but you mm -hmm. also seem like someone who's really interested in breaking out of whatever box mm, um, may exist around that tradition so is there a negotiation there how do you sort of put that together yeah you know I wanted to be an actor since I was nine years old. That's what I wanted to do. And everything that I saw, that I, every movie that I saw since nine was like, oh, I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to do that one day. And so, and I mean, I went to NYU for acting. I was an acting major. And this just, tap dancing just happened to like grab my attention and, you know, give me this whole other level of, of, of expression. And so I remember um, while, and then my, my tap dance career just, you know, just sort of took off, you know. And I remember feeling... Ugh, a little sort of like just regret, not regretful, but just missing that other aspect of myself that I, you know, that I had basically kind of put to the side to, in order to pursue this, this dance form. And so I, I've been always been doing like a little bit of a dance, like acting, you know, I did some television stuff, you know, and then I would just go back to just touring, you know, whatever. And so I would kind of go back, back and forth like that. But what, one thing, I was talking to my friend Tracy Toms about this. She's a, a, a musical theater. Well, she's an actress, period. But she, um, and I was saying that the thing that I didn't like about the acting business was <laughs> I didn't like the hustle of going to all of the auditions and not really getting yeah. to like really kind of sink your teeth into work, you know, because the competition was so great. So I was always trying to find a way to marry the two loves. How do I marry tap mm -hmm. dancing and how how do I marry my theatrical expression? And then I was also, because I also had seen the power of tap dancing to tell stories. I mean, Bring the Noise, Bring in the Funk was right. incredibly, um, you know, just, it was masterful, that piece. And so tap dancing can live in this world, you know, as well. And so what I did was... Um, 
I was concerned with the way audiences were just looking at dance concerts, tap dance concerts. And I felt like they would talk about the virtuosity, but they, I felt like they weren't walking away with anything else that was like moving to them. Yeah. And me, mm-hmm. as an avid theater person and as an avid movie, you know, film person, I was like, I want to I feel something. I want people to feel something when they're watching me. And so I started to do this. It's the first, uh, in 2005, I did this piece called Diary of a Tap Dancer, where it was the first time I started to do voiceover along with tap so that people could get, the audiences could get a little bit more of a sense of, you know, A, who we were, um, and B, that they would receive the tap dancing portion of the entertainment with... Um, just more openly, you know? Yeah. Um, and so when I got to do While I Have the Floor, that was me really saying, well, okay, I want, I can be in control of the narrative. If there's not work out there that really sort of can honor the depth of my expression of what I'm able to do, you know, in both acting and both dancing, then I can write it myself, you know? That seems like such a key insight that you had about audiences at, you know, dance concerts, um, because it's a lot of work to put a, a show together and mm-hmm. and I, I have to imagine that for so many people, you know, you can get sort of lost in the sauce, you know, and, and sort of get so immersed in the technical aspect and the sort of um, the production aspect and figuring out how to just nail this thing. And then mm. and then you, you don't necessarily always ask the question, like, how is this landing emotionally? How is this, you know, resonating for people who may not know what a ball change is, you know, like, right. le- let alone, like, all the really sophisticated <laughs> stuff that you're doing. Right. When I go see theater, when I go see a, f- a film, if I don't cry, then I feel like they've failed somehow. <laughs> like, <laughs> unless, because I'm very sensitive. I'm very easy. To, like, I go, I go on the journey very easily. But, um, and so I feel like I wanted folks to have that experience. Not to say just crying, but just like a really strong connection to what it was that they were viewing, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, and it was just, and I, as, I, as I said, I always knew that tap dancing had the power to do that. But I, I did feel like for me personally, my instinct and my impulse was that I wanted to uh, get to it by using my other creative expression, which to me is the is words. Yeah. Uh, and while I have the floor, I had the opportunity to, to write that for myself. And yeah. So given that this is the working podcast and it's very process forward, that leads me to a question about your preparation. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a tap dancer is quite obviously an athlete as well as an artist. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine, you know, you've got to spend a certain amount of time with physical conditioning and with just, you know, keeping yourself fluid and like on top of everything. But there's also got to be a part of your artistic practice that's like much more quiet, much more contemplative, where you're involved in reading and reflection. And so where's the balance there for you? How does that all factor in? That is so spot on. I think both are equally as important. I will say that as I've gotten older, (laughs) the taking care of your body has become a very, very big thing for me. You know, when I was younger, tap dancers, you know, we're not ballet dancers. So there was the, we didn't have the practice of like, you know, stretching and doing a full warm up before we just literally put on our shoes and go. Not yeah. realizing, especially when I was younger, the impact to your knees and your lower back and those things, you know. So, um, and I've gotten uh, to the point now in these last couple of years where I actually had like I had a fractured back, a fractured spine last oh, wow. golly last fall. Yes, and I'm still recovering from that. And so that requires a lot more warming up and a lot more conditioning and a lot like you know it's it takes 
hours leading up to performances and sometimes just like, you know, the days, you know, weeks just sort of in preparation for the next right. thing just so that I can get through it, you know. But also I spend a lot of time really, I'm going to use the word daydreaming, and, and I, but, but really, yeah, just thinking deeply about what it is that I'm working on and what, I, what do I want the outcome of this to be? What do I, what do I want to say with it? What is the device that's going to make this point land, mm. you know? Yeah. And so there is a lot of time of just thinking and writing and talking to my collaborators about that. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned collaborators, your most recent, I guess your current show which is called Chasing Magic, includes, you know, what seems like a little society that you've constructed, you know, and, and Arturo <laughs> Farrell, Arturo is one of those people. Yes. And there's a, a core yes. of dancers that you work with. Mm-hmm. And there, there are some other folks involved. So my impression of this work is that it is very much a community-minded work, but there's also sort of an experience that comes out of pandemic isolation mm-hmm. that's in there. Yeah. And it seems like a piece that you really like thought a lot about how to thread that needle, you know, how to sort of get all of those things in orbit properly. Chasing Magic was uh, an invitation by the Joyce Theater to create something during the time when there were no live performances. And I remember him them asking me, you know, what do you want to do? And I was thinking, golly, like a lot of people have even left the city. And then also where, how are we going to gather? You know, this is like January of 20, February of 2021. You know, there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of uncertainty. And um, one of my greatest collaborators is Toria Beard, who directed Chasing Magic and who's also my partner, my wife. Um, And we, so we were just saying, well, what do we do? Let's work with what we have. And what we have is we have existing work. We have work that has never been done, like that I've choreographed and has never been staged. We had work that had been done, but we hadn't um, done it in a few years. And we called, made calls, and people said yes. The people who were in town, I I ended up sending them videos via, you know, just via text and saying, hey, can you learn this? And we shot that. We had one day of rehearsal and we shot in six hours. Um, And that was how that came together. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Essentially. Uh And Arturo, he came in. I said, we were going to do it. We're going to do a six minute thing. And we we danced and played for 14. We had to edit it down because it was a 14 minute piece. Um, But it was just like beautiful the way everybody came together. But now you've taken Chasing Magic on the road. You just presented it at the Spoleto Festival. And and so how has it evolved from this kind of hothouse pandemic piece to a, sort of a living, you know, a living work with actual audiences in real space. You know, what, what's the, the difference in alchemy there? Yeah, the, well, the difference we learned very quickly when um, American Repertory Theater invited us to do the first live version of it was, and we had two weeks to put this from film to live. And that was that we realized that I couldn't be in all the scenes at once. <laughs> like from one to the other because (laughs) I remember we would go well the next dance comes and I was like panting heavily because I'm like I can't do all of these dances (laughs) um, in a row (laughs) so we had to create so Toria you know our director created transitions just like how do we get in and out of how how can we make each chapter um, sort of its own 
like world and then how do we you know mm-hmm. sort of mystically move from one to the next and the next and so that's how it how how we ended up getting to the live version was creating some transitions me giving over some of these dances to you know our brilliant like dance collaborators who you know who are there um Naomi Funaki who oh it's like she's like just an incredible young dancer um I think the the one thing that remains I think from the film is that that spirit remains on stage. You know, Mm -hmm. the people that we dance with are just, they're just so, um, there's a relationship that we have cultivated that happens in all of the days leading up to any performance. You know what I mean? And so you see that, people see that community on stage and they feel it. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure to be Mm -hmm. in that that audience, it's got to be a beautiful vibration, you know? Um, But we've been talking about Really, almost exclusively, we've been talking about work where you control the creative dimension almost entirely, right? But there's at least one really big example of you working within a larger system. And this is, of course, your tap choreography for the Broadway production of Funny Girl. Mm. Um, There's a really wonderful video on YouTube that I I saw where you are in a studio with two of the dancers from the production and you're... (laughs) Basically yeah. going, it's like a 20, 20 something minute video and you're mm-hmm. going through a sequence, you know, phrase by phrase. The The premise is that, you know, Ayodele Cassell is going to teach you how to do this sequence. I mean, you, you've got to be pretty advanced tap dancer if you can actually <laughs> follow along. Now, a lot of people like learn by like, uh, you know, both rhythm and also like knowing what the steps are. I mean, we can go step, step, heel, heel, dig, spank, heel, shuffle, step, brush back, heel, shuffle, hop, shuffle, step, heel. That is a thing. Or and then of course the way But it also leads me to a question because watching it and I watched it with my nine year old daughter who is who who takes tap classes. I said, Hey, maybe you'll learn something, you know. We'll see. But uh, it reminded me that the process of, of creating a sequence like this, it's so iterative, right? It's like you develop you know, a piece and you work it and rework it and rework it. And there's, you know, some of what you're doing there is refining something. But mm. I wonder, too, whether there's discovery in that repetition. Yeah, it's like um, in the tradition of tap dancing, of improvisation, like where you are. Um, it's just kind of it's in our training, for lack of a better word, the idea of um, building on the thing before right yeah and then also following a flow and not manipulating not manipulating it i mean which is kind of a, that's an interesting thing to say like not manipulating because you are like making choices and making decisions as it does it move this way does it move that way but i do think that um there's a i think that there's something in creating uh choreography that for me it's like building in the way that i would think about improvisation but it just maybe takes a little bit longer. But you're following mm-hmm. the same impulses, right? And so sometimes I, I start with like a, an overall like idea of like, well, I want, like for example, that number for the, it's called Rat Tat Tat and it's a duo between the two men. I was thinking about the tap dance duos and I was thinking about the Condos Brothers in particular because the Condos Brothers had very uh, fast feet and they would change directions in a really, you know, just, just so swiftly. And then, so I'm thinking about like t- 
tempos and what does this sound like? It sounds like, the, you know, the drum and how does, how does it flow? Basically, how does it flow? And then right. that's how you build on it. It just builds on a flow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also like visually, like, you know, you wa- I want to make it look like something, you know, <laughs> because right. I also, because even though I say tap is music, you know, it's also called tap dance and there is a body <laughs> that, you know, we have to take, take into consideration how it's actually moving. And so, um, you know, direction changes and what, what is fun to do. And also to just to give the dancers something to chew on because, you know, they're doing it eight times a week. So we got to keep it interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we're sort of beginning to wrap up here, I wanted to specifically ask about your role as an ambassador for this art form. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's undeniable that you are that. Mm, and thank you. is this something that you, you know, I mean, how much of a conscious effort do you put into that side of this? You know, the advocacy and, you know, doing interviews like this, <laughs> you know, and yeah. really like articulating um, what you know to be true about this art form. You know, I remember when I, uh, I did an interview uh, in probably 19, maybe 2000, maybe perhaps. And the interviewer asked me, you know, what do I want people to say about me? You know, been a hundred years or whatever. And I, I remember saying like, I, I want people to say that, you know, there's Ayadeli, you know, who, who made a difference and, and made an impact period. And I remember feeling like I, when I first fell in love with this art form that, and it gave me so much joy and, it, and I, I've learned so much and it has taken me around the world. I've learned so many things about other cultures. I've, you know, I've, I've met so many different people. I've gotten a chance to like teach, you know, 90 year olds and three year olds. And, you know, um, I I had Gregory Hines as a mentor. I mean, it's just like, I, I feel like this is, it's almost an embarrassment of riches, like what this art form has given me. And so I have always wanted to just contribute to it, um, in equal measure. And so for me, I naturally feel that, it's my job, you know, to just share with people how incredible I think the art form is and, and its potential for um, to seep into every like <laughs> nook and cranny of every conversation, culture and music and social justice and, you know, um, everything. Art it should be in every conversation because I think that it, that's where it has lived, you mm-hmm. know, it has lived like that is the history of it. Yeah. That is so beautifully put. I think your work and what you embody speaks directly to that ideal. And so once again, congratulations. Thank you um, so much. You know, all of these deserving honors and the work continues, I know. Um, yes. <laughs> so thank you, Ayodele Cassell, once again for being on The Working Podcast. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, I have loved every moment. Thank you so much, Nate. Thank you. When we come back, Nate and I will discuss self-expression, how we relate to the history of our art forms, and reaching a non-expert audience. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget. 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Nate, that was a really wonderful interview about a vastly important, endlessly entertaining American art form. And one thing you mentioned that I wanted to give you a chance to expand upon is the New Yorican influence in Ayadeli's work. Where do you hear that? Is it just the music selection? Is it the specific rhythms of her feet? You know, you've forgotten more about jazz than I'll ever know. So I want to take advantage of your expertise here. That is a great question. And it's most clear when she works with someone like Arturo O'Farrell and his Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra. And, you know, if you have a chance to see footage of her and Arturo in, in a sort of improvised duet, it's really, you know, astounding. But, you know, on more basic terms, I think you can also hear the way she articulates rhythm as a dancer. And if you know what to listen for, you can hear the pulse of clave. And Isaac, are you familiar with clave? Yeah. Are you talking about the, uh, well, I'm familiar both with the instrument, but also the duck, the duck, the duck, the duck, the duck. that rhythm specifically? Right. It, it expresses itself either as sort of 3-2 or 2-3. And right, really, it's right. the heartbeat of, of Afro-diasporic music. And it even is foundational to rock and roll. But the place right. that most of us hear it in music is in music like mambo and in Latin jazz. And, you know, I think if you hear Ayodele dancing, I think you can hear that clave, you know, in, in varying degrees of presence. But it's always there. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, also, uh, obviously, I'm someone who writes cultural history, so of course this would appeal to me, you know, I love the kind of epiphanic moment, her discovery of the history of tap as an African-American art form while she's in college, helping her to enable her expression. I mean, not to mention the amazing dancers she named, Gregory Hines, the Nicholas Brothers, Jimmy Slide, Savion Glover. You know, I, I, I've, I've seen two of them live, the, the other two obviously not, but, you know, incredible, incredible performers. I, I sometimes feel like young artists or my, or my students, I should say, have a certain, I don't know, indifference towards, maybe even hostility to the history of their art form, you know, because when you're young, it's like, oh, I'm going to do my own thing, man. Uh, but that history can absolutely be something that helps you do your own thing. Yeah, 100%. And and this is where I felt a, a real um, sort of unexpected kinship with Ayodele in conversation, because as soon as she started talking about lineage and, and cultural history and the lessons of a previous generation, you know, like it just felt so familiar to me because this is how musicians talk in jazz circles. You know, the mm-hmm. history is like a living resource. And it's also like often a a burden to be shouldered, you know, because there's so much greatness in the past and you have to, as a, as an emerging artist, you have to figure out what you carry forward, you know, what you internalize, what you decide to shrug off, you know, it's really heavy, but if you reject it out of hand, then you're missing out on so much personal expression and, 
access to, mm-hmm. you know, everything that makes the art form work and, and great. So I think her story is such a great example of how to find that history empowering, you know, and how it actually gives you a purpose moving forward. Yeah, totally. You two also brought up something that I feel like is a big issue in just about every art form, but you do hear about it a lot in jazz specifically in the 21st century, jazz in the 21st century, as you put it, right? How do you reach audiences that might not be an expert in your chosen art form and indeed might be intimidated by it? I I don't mean how do you get them to walk in the door? That's a question for a marketing podcast. I mean how in the work and in the way the work is shaped, do you speak to an audience that, you know, might not be an expert in bebop or abstract expressionism or opera or, you know, whatever art form you're doing. Ayadeli brought up emotion as one way to bridge that divide. And I, I'm wondering what are some other ways you see artists solving that problem right now? Yeah, that, well, you know, there's so many possible ways to make that happen, but uh, but I do mm-hmm. want to focus on that one. Um, like emotional expression is so crucial. And I have to think that whether you're a tap dancer or a visual artist or, you know, or a musician, it's so easy to for a piece to sort of become about itself because you work so hard to you know, refine your technique and to, you know, make it exactly what it's supposed to be. And you really have to check yourself to make sure that you are thinking about that, you know, that connective piece of it, you know, and reaching an audience on an emotional level. I think a really good example, actually, Isaac, the last time I ran into you in person was in the lobby of the Metropolitan Opera, right? Right. Yeah, totally. During the intermission for Terrence Blanchard's Champion. And yes, uh, the the lead of which was Ryan Speedo Green, who was a guest on an earlier episode of Working. That was actually why I was going to see it, because I was interviewing him the very next day. Yeah. And and I think neither of us is like a really deep opera head. Right. But no, I want to be, but I'm not. (laughs) But, you know, that 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 piece champion i mean i think some of the deep opera heads may have quibbled with it more than more than the two of us did i thought it was such an incredibly powerful work and it came down to human emotion you know and sort of it was so legible and so powerful and that's kind of the fundamental thing and and that you know that can be the case in tap dance or in opera or sculpture or anything really yeah you know, it's funny because I just want to go to bat for there's there's another strategy that's the polar opposite that I find really interesting and in, in to go back to opera like Philip Glass's Akhenaten, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Where the work somehow in its opening few minutes is very much like this isn't necessarily a story. <laughs> you know, you're not right. necessarily going to understand this. It's not even in a language that's still spoken on this earth, right? You know, this is a an experience and you're just going to kind of, we give you permission to experience it however you're going to experience right. it. Or, you know, when he and Robert Wilson did uh, Einstein on the Beach in the audience, it was four hours with no intermission. And they said in advance, you can come and go as you please. Mm-hmm. You know, you can leave for 20 minutes, use the bathroom, get a drink and come back. You know, that there's a way in which it can also be freeing to just give the audience the permission to not have to make sense of it. Absolutely. You know, that's a really wild thing that's only, I think, very, you know, a late 20th century development. But I, 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 there's part of me that finds that very freeing and interesting as well. Completely. You know, I, I, um, for a little over a decade, I lived in Beacon, New York and, Mm -hmm. you know, this is home to a museum called Dia Beacon. And um, it was such a beautiful thing to raise my kids in this town because 
we treated the museum like it was, you know, it's literally in our backyard. And so they grew up wandering in and out of Richard Serra's gigantic, you know, torqued ellipses. And yeah. those sculptures are are the essence of what you're describing. You know, it's like they don't give you any kind of message. It's all experiential. Each person interacts with the space and with the, the presence of these sculptures in a way that is not replicable because, you know, the, the experience happens within yourself. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think that's that's a, another really powerful way to go. But it, it does put a sort of burden on the creator because you have to sort of, you know, like if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Oh, boy. Yeah. Boy, is that ever true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. I just also want to say if you want to know more about the history of tap and see some blistering performances from legendary dancers. I cannot recommend more highly the documentary No Maps on My Taps, which is currently streaming on the Criterion channel. And if you want to support what we do right here on Working, just going to remind you one more time, go to slate.com slash working plus and sign up for Slate Plus today. You'll get all sorts of great goodies, full access behind the paywall. Uh, you'll be able to sleep better at night knowing you support great journalism and interviews. You'll get bonus segments of shows like this one, bonus full episodes of shows like slow burn and big mood little mood go to slate.com slash working plus today thank you so much to our guest this week Ayodele Cassell and also to Cameron Drews who always keeps us fleet on our feet we will be back next week for Isaac's conversation with the singer-songwriter Peter One until then get back to work 